Hey, COV. Today, we're going to talk about identity. But more importantly, we're going to talk about God's word and what he says about our identity, which has been lost on our culture for generations. We all strive to find our place in life. We all strive to make sense of this world and the common traits of mankind to be explored where we can actually see why we are the way that we are and what our identity is placed in. We want to find meaning, but we think that the scriptures that men and women have been martyred for over many, many years and have defended and protected seem to be ancient. They seem to not really be trending today. And so my hope is as we study 1 Peter, as we continue the series called Proving Ground, is that we'd see that the word is as applicable today as it was when it was written 2,000 years ago. We care more about a celebrity's recommendation today than the apostles. We'd rather hear from an influencer about our worth than from God's own son. So today we're going to hear from the words of the Holy Spirit penned and recorded by a scribe said out loud by Peter the Apostle so that through the power and guidance of God, we know who he is and we can understand who we are because of him. So let's start in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Therefore, as we spoke last week, we covered a passage that pointed us to the reality that God makes us holy, that Jesus is our holiness, and we don't have to work for our salvation. We get to live in the reality that God has made us set apart. Rather than work our way towards attempting to be perfect, when Jesus truly is our perfection, he truly is our holiness. So therefore, Peter says, rid yourself of some things. Get rid of deceit. Get rid of lying to people to either make yourself look better or to make things easier on yourself. Don't exaggerate. The reality is that when we exaggerate, we're lying. When we exaggerate, we try to make ourselves look more effective than we truly are. But we ought to, as Christians, as people indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we ought to tell the truth. Because God is the truth. And when we speak falsely or refuse to be honest, we have not embraced who God says that we are. The Bible speaks of lying a lot, like a lot, a lot. And it's not just don't do this. It's people become identified by their deceit. They're called liars, not just because they lie, but because that's who they become. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 15, the apostle John writes and he says, outside are the dogs. Those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I don't read this to you to then sing, liars go to hell. I say this because deceit and lying is not what the Spirit of God indwells you for. People don't just lie, they are liars. And that's the problem. We shouldn't be defined by our sin. We don't have to be when we come to Christ. So then we pull the grace card. Well, I'm a saint. Not if you continue to lie, because that isn't what the Spirit of God does in his people. And our identity is not a makeover, but a takeover of God making us his. But it isn't just deceit that Peter points out. It's malice, it's hypocrisy, it's envy and slander. The sad part is that the things that Peter is describing, they're all of us. But the joyful part is but God. But God intervened. We not only had the ability to not be about God's business, we, we were not about him before we came to Christ. 
but we no longer have to be defined at all by what we do, either good or bad. And because of this, we can live in the freedom that we are who God says that we are. This past week, I got to jump into one of our guys' groups that is led by Kyle Zilka and Ray Luna. And Kyle asked this great question about what we once were like when we walked in ignorance as we studied the passage from last week in the sermon that I preached. And we got to share what we were once like before Christ, before God had changed us. And some men's stories were about the anger that they once were fueled by. Some were about their lying nature and wanting others to look up to them. Others talked about their pride and how they were incredibly selfish before Jesus. I got to tell the story that I really can't go into in a sermon because there are impressionable ears. But if you want to talk about this, we can have the conversation at some point. But I'll say this, I was a pretty difficult child. I was a pretty rough teenager. I don't, I'd never listened to rules. I pretty much would always do whatever I could to start a fight, to antagonize people, or attempt to hurt people either physically or emotionally. So much so that I got expelled from a few schools in elementary and in junior high. That's middle school for you young people. By either starting or finishing some fights, or being incredibly disrespectful to all the authorities in my life. So for all those teachers who are listening to the sermon, be thankful that your pastor was not your student when I was younger. I would have made your life and classroom a nightmare. But just think, some of those heavenly sandpaper that you guys have to deal with in your classes may end up making much of Jesus someday. Okay, I digress. Here's the thing. I would hurt people constantly. I felt no remorse, none, literally none. I didn't lose any sleep over it or really give it a second thought. And as I told this men's group, one of the more depraved moments of me hurting some other people uh, emotionally, it dawned on me not only how bad I feel now about what I did, but that I've become remorseful since God intervened in my life. And it is God's transforming work that is one of the best apologetics for his existence. It is the reality that God transforms. The truth is that if we stay the same, we have not met the master of the universe because God is in the changing business. So let's keep going. Verse 2. Here's what Peter says. Verse 2 and 3. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Not that you have... Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, the word of God, the truth that some of you hold in your hands, it's not about the phone, if that's where you have the Bible, or even the bound book, but the recorded word and will of God communicated to us through the Holy Spirit so that we could live and love God the way that he wants us to, the way he tells us to. And so we crave the word. We crave God's truth being read, proclaimed, and explained. Because like a newborn baby, it's something we need to grow up. It's something we need to grow up in our salvation. I love that term, to grow up in your salvation. We, aren't, we are saved by grace through faith, and it is this offer that is received in an instant. It is our new birth, but just like our physical birth, we need to grow in stature and knowledge. So we, like a newborn baby, are in the process of growth. Spiritually, it is known as sanctification. And it is this ongoing journey and process of ups and downs, 
falling down and getting back up, taking a step forward, then taking a step back. And God is in all of it because he is the one that brings growth in our lives for the glory of his name. The past few weeks in the sermons and in the testimonies and in the takeaway calls after the playlist, there has been this theme of putting into practice God's word because that is what obedience is. And that is how we grow in our Christ-likeness. That is how sanctification happens. And I am grateful for an eldership and a staff and leaders and participants that practice what they hear and they emphasize it. This comes out of a tasting and knowing that the Lord is good. We have been encapsulated by the love of God because he first loved us and we are compelled to praise him and trust him because we know that he has come to us relationally, that we have connected with God relationally through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse four, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. As you come to him, this implies an expectation of remaining as we read in John 15, as you remain in him, as you abide in him, who is the living stone, but more of that in the next verse. He has been rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Jesus is God's instrument. He is the Messiah that was God's plan A and the only way to bring man to God through the sacrificial work of God in his deserving wrath or in our deserving wrath being placed upon his son. Verse five, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. First Peter calls, a living, calls Jesus the living stone, and then he says, you also, speaking to the exiled Christians, are like living stones. We, as followers of Jesus, are part of the spiritual house that the Lord is building, metaphorically speaking. And we are included in Christ because his salvation not only saves us from an eternity without him, but saves us to Jesus' spiritual advantage. Something as Christians that we may take for granted is how closely we are identified with Christ. We, we have spoken before of the reality that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus because of what Jesus has accomplished in our place which may be the most important salvation realization that any of us can come to. Because then we do not have to attempt to work to gain affection or salvation because we know that Jesus has covered all of that already for us. And so we can live in this identity. We don't do things for God to earn anything. We do things for God because he first loved us. But not only does God see us in light of Jesus, but we ought to see ourselves in light of Jesus also. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to the church in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul lived his life in a cross-centered way. He did not consider himself anything. He was a sinner saved by grace, and that is how he wanted people to see him. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, called himself that because he received his identity from the reality that he knew that Jesus loved him. James, 
Jesus's half-brother, even though physically born to the same mother as Jesus, saw himself as, uh, as the understanding after Christ's resurrection that he was Jesus's servant. In James chapter 1, verse 1, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jude, another half-brother of Jesus, he says in his letter as he begins it in Jude 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. The New Testament writers and apostles and disciples saw their identity as one included in Christ. And unfortunately today, we see our identity even Christians see our identity today based on what we do. And then we take what we do and we make it Christian. Being a Christian means our identity comes from Jesus rather than adding Jesus to our identity. Listen, you're not a Christian engineer. You are a Christian who works in engineering. Paul, the greatest religious man who ever lived, saw himself attached to Jesus in his identity that nothing else mattered to him but Jesus and the glory that Paul could then give Jesus through his life. So our identity should always be wrapped up in Jesus. And then Peter uses this analogy of the spiritual house that he then equates to a holy priesthood. In Christ, there is a priesthood of all believers. What this means is that you and I, when we have trusted Christ, we are gifted the Holy Spirit who then equips us to be priestly. A priest in the Old Testament had a lot of responsibilities when it came to the upkeep and care for the temple. And even though a case could be made for that today where we, our bodies are the temple and we ought to keep them up and we ought to care for them, that's another sermon for another day. Peter says in verse 5, you also, like the living stones, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A priest would do everything from looking after the temple to being a mediator between sinful people and God. But their most important privilege, a priest's most important privilege, was that they had direct access to God. Because of Jesus and his gifting us his righteousness, his holiness, we now have access to God. And we have responsibility as God's people, as his holy people, his royal priesthood, to care for his people, to point others to him, to be people infused with the spirit of God who can pray directly to God and read God's word and put it into practice. And we, who are like living stones, and the living stone, Jesus Christ, are able to bring sacrifices that are acceptable to God, not because we tried to hard enough or because we are holy enough on our own, but because God and for God and through God, we can bring sacrifices to God that please him. Why? Because we're with Jesus. In verse six, Peter says, for in scripture, it says, I see, or see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For in scripture it says, Peter quotes, he was speaking to an audience who had reverence for the word of God, which they only knew as the Hebrew scriptures. Applying the text that they were familiar with to Jesus was what Peter and all the apostles were all about. They would constantly point to the Hebrew scriptures and then point it towards Jesus. 
Church, we've covered a few Old Testament books as a church since I got here. We have Pastor Mike on our staff, who I'd say has a special affinity for the Old Testament. But he and I and we are all about what the apostles were about, that we find Jesus on every page, that we understand that he is in everything, that that God has been unfolding his plan over thousands of years to point the world to their need and hope found in redemption through the work of Jesus Christ. Peter then goes on to make this point from the Hebrew Scriptures, quoting Isaiah chapter 28, making the point that the cornerstone, the Christ, is what God's church is built on. Without him, the church does not stand, nor should it, because he is our righteousness and we follow the perfect one. We gather because of Jesus. We scatter because of Jesus. We live and breathe and have our being because of Jesus. And everything that we possess, even our own existence, can be attributed to Jesus. I don't ever want to get away from the insurmountable amount of grace that the Lord has provided in Jesus Christ's sacrifice. I don't want us to start to focus on things that aren't that. I don't want us to spend all our time trying to figure out some code or crack a code or think of things that have nothing to do with Jesus. We as a church are about Jesus. The cornerstone, as Peter says, in this building analogy was known as the most important stone. In fact, it was the stone that the entire rest of the building was manufactured from. The cornerstone was the rock that the rest of the building was built upon and around. And so is Jesus. And that's why we want to be about Jesus in everything we do. We find him in all of scripture and we make him center in our lives because without him, there is no building. Without without him, there is no holy temple. Without him, there is no access to God the Father. Those who have placed their trust in Christ will never regret it. Their faith will not be in vain. They will never be put to shame. And then Peter quotes Psalm 118. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, Now to you who believe the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, here's where he quotes Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Peter's point is that those who build for God or those who serve God can be doing it in vain if they've rejected the cornerstone. If they've rejected who Jesus is, then their service and their effort has all been in vain. That's how important Jesus is, y'all. You can look like someone else. You can be as pious as them. You can be as religious as them. You can be as, in quotes, holy as they are and have an eternity that is completely different than yours. It's not about what you do, it's about whose you are. And we as Christians, identified by Jesus, do what we do for and because of him, because he first loved us. Now let's unpack probably the most quoted verse in this passage, one where where Peter says, through the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit, but you are. Since much of what we have talked about so far in this passage is about identity, I want to begin by saying that we, like those exiled Christians, all over modern-day Turkey is where they were, do not have to find their identity in anything external. They don't have to find their identity in their politics. They don't have to find their identity in their upbringing. They don't have to find their identity in their sexuality. They don't have to find it in their effort. Because created things and things we attempt to gain 
through efforts are fleeting. They cannot bear the weight of our identity. They will only disappoint because nothing created or strived for should ever have to bear the weight of our identity. It is only in Jesus Christ who says and makes us to be that our identity can really be, find a home. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, here's what Peter says. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. But you are, exiled Christians, you are a chosen people. You didn't come to God because you were good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people liked you. You came to God because God willed it, because he called you, because he is gracious and merciful and wonderful. He chose you not because of your goodness or even your potential to be good, but to show off the immeasurable beauty of God's grace. And on top of that, he didn't choose you alone as if to be a spiritual only child, but he adopted you into a family and made you part of a people, a chosen people. And he goes on and he says that we are a royal priesthood. Peter is using Old Testament language to point out our identity that is found in Christ as God's people. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, the prophet Isaiah says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant who I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, no will, no, nor will there be one after me. And then moving on to verse 20, Isaiah continues, the wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. The theme of chosen, that God is the initiator and securer, is blatant in the Old Testament writings, in the Hebrew scriptures. And then he says that we are his royal priesthood in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully, God says, and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I want us to take note that our being God's people is because of God's grace and his plan. I think it's weird that people try to get really upset, that they get angry that God doesn't save everyone when everyone doesn't want him. We are God's possession for what purpose? That you may declare the praises, Peter says, of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. We are saved, church, to praise him, and we are made righteous to testify of his work. So as identified Christians, we are called out of darkness. We are no longer blind to our sin, but we are remorseful, and we are grace-filled because we have been pulled out of the nature that only led to death and given a nature that only leads to life. And as we as God's people, his special possession, have an inheritance, a nature, a priestly duty, and a life that all revolve around and are because of Jesus. COV, I yearn for us to embrace that simple fact. And I'm going to rant a little bit, and this won't be the first one. But here's what I know. Some of us think, yeah, 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 Jesus. 
We were raised in a church, maybe we were raised at Church of the Valley, and we grew up hearing about Jesus and how he died for our sins. But you know, it's more than that. He did die for our sins so that we could have life, and he cemented that by rising from the dead. He provides us life because of our identity. He makes a way that we can have access to God the Father. He is our holiness. He is our right standing. He is our righteousness. He is our glory. We live forgiven lives that exalt and testify to Jesus and the difference that he has made in our current life and our eternity to come. We never, ever graduate past Jesus or need anything but Jesus. We identify ourselves as Christians by who Jesus has made us to be and who he says that we are. When we stand in front of God after we die, we cannot bring up anything we have done that is good enough to get past the velvet rope. But we point to Jesus and we say, I'm with him. And the Father says, well done. Not because of anything we've done, but because of whose we are. Our identity naturally goes towards what we do or what we have done what we are known for and where we're from. But in the kingdom of God and because of the gospel, our identity is in whose we are and what he has done. So church, don't think we graduate from God's only son. Don't look past him or over his shoulder. He is the center. He is the point. Without him, we are dead in our sins. With him, we are glorified forever and ever. Amen. If you're wondering what kind of church COV is, if you want to know what our identity or connection or association or denomination is, here it is. We are about Jesus every day. Nothing more, nothing less. We are about Jesus and his business and raising him up and exalting him. We say this about the gospel all the time. It's about him and it's not about us. So embrace the reality That spiritually, God sees his son when he looks at you. And you were not saved by Jesus because you obeyed, but you were saved by Jesus so you could obey. Let me say that again. You were not saved by Jesus because you obeyed, but you were saved by Jesus so you could obey. There is a drastic difference. When we walk the earth in the trials and the suffering of a world that is full of sin, When we're in Jesus, we don't have to look at our circumstances or our good works or our past accomplishments or even our potential. We look at Jesus and we know that we are his people and he is our God. Rant over. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, Peter says, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So church, We are saved unto the Lord, by the Lord, to be his people, his ecclesia, his church. And our belonging in the church is not like a Costco membership where we have certain benefits and certain rights. It is an adoption into a family that changes our trajectory of where we were going and where we would end up. So COV, it's 2020. And if I'm honest, I don't know about you, but I could do without this year. I hope Doc and Marty never go to this point in in the future. But you and I, if we've trusted Christ, we are included as God's people, his special possession, the royal priesthood, his holy nation. And we are a people, plural, not singular. 
with many of you because we are the people of God together. He has rescued us out of darkness and he has brought us into the wonderful light. Because mercy, not getting what we deserve, has been offered and received, we can point, praise, and applaud Jesus because it was all him and none of us. And I am no longer Tim, the former atheist. I am not Tim, the ex-insurance agent. I am not Tim, the pastor, husband, father, brother, friend. I am a sinner who is saved by grace, who God in his infinite mercy and love chose me to show off his goodness by making someone who did nothing right, did nothing holy, did nothing but attempt to find pleasure and glory for myself. And he, through Jesus, took all of that and he made me his. So how can we not praise Jesus today, tomorrow, and for the rest of eternity? Because we no longer walk in ignorance as we once did, but we walk in the light of the glory of Jesus and we are his and he is ours. I'm going to conclude with two things. We're going to take a breath and we want to give you the opportunity to give. If this is the place where God is growing you and you believe this is your church community, we're doing the sermons inside the worship center. I've got Keith in the room. He's behind the soundboard. He's got his mask on. I don't have my mask on because I want my beard to be fluffy and nice, but I'll put it on as soon as I'm done. But we are meeting in this room, and only a few of us get to come in here every week, and I miss being able to be in this room with all of you. And we're looking at different ways on how we can actually worship together safely and make it so we have an opportunity as God's people to come together. And like we've said before, the playlists don't suck. It just stinks that we have to be in our home or we have to watch it on screen rather than being together. And so we want to encourage you, if this is your community, if you're watching the playlist, if you're used to coming into the church, want to encourage you to give because it's an act of worship. And then with that, this past week and what you'll experience on the playlist after I pray is that I grabbed a few of our worship leaders and a few of our tech people and I asked them to come to my front lawn this past week. And we set up on the front lawn and a lot of people who walked by had no idea what we were doing. In fact, there was uh, some pretty fun uh, cameos of people that showed up in the middle of our singing. But we wanted to worship and we want to see what it would be like to worship in person safely at a distance with masks on. And so we're going to play this video and we're going to worship together and you're going to get to see some of us in this recording. And it's, the sound's going to be a little bit more muffled because we wanted to be safe. You're not gonna see everybody in the shot all at once. Uh, it's not gonna be as clear or crisp as some of the other things that we've shot, but we just wanted to start to experiment to see what it would like, be like. So once we come back together, we can do it safely and not be ignorant on how to bring people back together to worship Jesus Christ corporately, but safely. And so I'm gonna pray for us. And I hope that after I pray that you would uh, give of your offering online or send a check. And then also that you would spend this time watching the worship set and be able to worship our God because he is worthy of our praise. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the men and women and children that have been a part of this playlist this week and are watching this playlist this week. And I thank you for your people. And I ask God as we prepare our hearts to worship in song, as we 
either write a check or do our offering online, that both things would be found not out of compulsion, not out of have to, not out of what we just do, but God, both things would be found out of worship because it is from a worshipful, worshipful heart that we live this life and we do what we do. So God, thank you that you didn't save us because we obeyed, because I know I don't obey without you. Thank you that you saved us so we could obey you. And I pray that you would take this offering of finances. I pray that you take this offering of worship and song, and all of it would bring a pleasing grin to your face, because you are worthy of our praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.